0: And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: This is Michael Woodward, and this is episode 87 of the Jumblethink podcast.
2: T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
1: Welcome to the Think Podcast, a podcast focused on telling the stories of dreamers, makers, innovators, and influencers. Along the way, we give you some tips and ideas of how you can chase your own big idea and dream and create the world you wanna live in. Our guest on today's episode is Glenn Livingston. More about Glenn in a moment. It's Thanksgiving week and we're changing some things up this week. Instead of a Thursday episode, we are releasing a new episode this Wednesday and Friday. Our guest on Wednesday's episode is gonna to be Tom Mule. Tom is an entrepreneur and the visionary behind Eye Trekkers. Eye is a tool for booking online guided outdoor adventures. Their outdoor adventures are perfect for individuals, groups, and businesses. In this episode, Tom shares some really cool stories. He shares his love for the outdoors and adventure and how he made that into a business. He also shares about how pivoting your business at the right time can help it grow and sustain for the long term. This episode's a lot of fun, so make sure to check it out this Wednesday. We are so excited at JumbleThink to be launching our first ever Idea Camps. At the beginning of... 2018 we are going to be launching our first ever virtual idea camp so that no matter where you're at what your schedule looks like you can be a part of something new and fresh what you need to do is swing on over to slash idea camp again that's jumblethink.com idea camp Sign that little form and if you do it, you get entry for free for our first ever Idea Camp. We're super excited about this and we want to make sure you're part of it. So swing on over to jumblethink.com slash ideacamp to learn more today. Now let's jump into today's episode with Glenn Livingston. Hey there, it's Michael Woodward, the host of the Jumblethink podcast. So glad to have you along for today's episode. Today's show is being brought to you by FreshBooks.com. You can get a free 30-day trial at GoFreshBooks.com Jumblethink. Again, that's www.GoFreshBooks.com Jumblethink. Our guest on the podcast today is Glenn Livingston. He's a psychologist and the long-term CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm. After his own journey of overcoming obesity and his food prison, he wrote a book called Never Binge Again. He works with people to help them overcome their addiction to food and get healthy. He's been featured on Chicago Sun-Times, The Star-Ledger, Daily News, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, CBS Radio, WGN, America, and UPN. You can check him out at NeverBingeAgain.com. In this episode, you might notice that I sound a little strange. I was really struggling that day with a massive cold. So I hope you enjoy this interview, even through the weirdness of how I sound. Now let's join the conversation we had with Glenn Livingston. Our guest today is Dr. Glenn Livingston. Glenn, how are you today?
2: I'm really good. I'm looking forward to the call, a lot of things to say, looking forward to what you want to ask, what you want to say, so um please call me Glenn, and I'm looking forward to, to working with you today.
1: We're going to talk about your book and your journey in a little bit. Um, but you have kind of an interesting journey to your, um, your research that you've done and, and the conclusions that you've made, observations, and the lives that you've helped impact. Tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey, being a longtime CEO, and, and how you kind of got into that space.
2: You know, I've always considered myself a psychologist, first and foremost. Um, And in the food space, by the way, I operate as a coach rather than a psychologist because I am. Some things I recommend that are maybe against the standards of care of my practice. But I'm I'm from a family of 17 psychologists and therapists and social workers. And, you know, we always joke that um, if something breaks in the house, we don't really know how to fix it, but we can ask it how it feels. But but uh, yeah. But all kidding aside, it was always the most important thing for me when when I was a kid. My, I heard my dad on the radio when I was four years old, and I asked my mom, "What's my dad doing on the radio?" She said, "Well, he's a psychologist." And I said, "Well, what's that?" And she said, "Well, he makes people happy when they're sad." And I said, "I want to do that." And I wanted to be on the radio, and I wanted to do all kinds of um wanted to make a lot of people happy when they were sad. So. It's, I now know it's not quite that simple, but um, that's basically what I look to do with my life.
1: That's really cool. That's a, a an interesting way to explain it to a child. I love that.
2: You know, it was the perfect way to explain it to a child. I, 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 re- I really got it, and um, I went to show and tell that week, I think, and I told people about my dad.
3: Oh, that's cool.
2: <laughs> he was on the radio, and so. Um, I still feel that way about him, by the way.
3: Oh, that's really so, cool.
2: So... I, um, I had spent a lot of years thinking I was just going to be a, you know a guy who sat in the office or had people lay down on the couch and I trained to be a couples and family therapist. And um, what happened though was that I, I married a marketer. okay. And I'm, I'm no longer married, but, but I married a marketer and well, she was training to be a psychologist. And she worked in industry, so she used to help Fortune 100 companies to have these really soulful conversations with their customers and figure out like, what their real needs were, um, what they responded to in advertising, um, how to change the product and change the advertising to meet their you know, most deeply held human needs. And I thought that was fascinating, and um, so while I was training to be a clinical psychologist with couples and families, I also started to do some consulting for those companies with her. And because I had a quantitative bent, in graduate school I was asked to assist with the um, teaching on the multivariate modeling of human behavior and basically means you try to put the soul into the machine and you, you know, observe things and get all these ratings and then run all these statistical models. But because I really understood that, I was able to quantify um, a lot of the soulful things that she was talking about, and that was very appealing to these big companies because while intuitively a lot of the CEOs, you know, and like C-level executives that were making these really critical decisions because intuitively they believed her they weren't comfortable making a 50 million dollar advertising decision or doing things like you know remember we did this big giant study on how to brand bausch and loam on a worldwide stage what what did vision mean to everyone wow uh, and they weren't comfortable making those grand decisions without some really solid numbers in place and they didn't want it to be just from simple surveys because there's a lot of biases involved with surveys so i I would design these observational studies and run all these statistics, and um, I got, you know, I started making some money doing that, and I got a little popular, and um, I consulted for a lot of big companies, a lot of big companies, so not just in the food space, in all kinds of spaces.
1: Now, you spent uh, a while doing research. You worked with over, over, I think it was 40,000 people on a self-funded research program around the world of obesity. Tell us about that, that study, what you found, and where that's lead, led you.
2: That's a little easier to understand if I tell you why I did it first. Okay. Um, see, I, I had an eating problem myself. I was a, I'm 6'4 and reasonably muscular, and as an as a adolescent, I discovered it's almost like I had a superpower. If I worked out for two and a half, three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to, like six thousand, seven thousand calories, no problem. I'd wake up weighing the same thing or more or less.
3: Yeah.
2: And um, you know, I was thin, more or less. And I, um, I found that when I got to graduate school, it was okay in college. But when I got to graduate school, I just didn't have the time to exercise for two and a half or three hours a day. I mean, I had. Patients and books to read and a dissertation to write that I was married and I Had had a commute and I like if I could find three days a week to do 45 minutes. I was in I was in luck. Yeah But but I couldn't stop obsessing. I developed this addiction to food and I just couldn't stop obsessing about eating that same level of calories and pizza and pasta and chocolate and lattes and whatever you could imagine and I don't think we called it a latte back then, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm 53, so they just called it a coffee with a lot of milk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, or they were just starting. A- anyway, I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I'd be sitting there with, um, you know, with, with a couple that was on the verge of divorce, like very high risk work, or even worse, a lot of times they would refer me their adolescent children who in a family that was troubled were often very troubled themselves and many of them were suicidal. Wow. And, you know, I, I really had to be a hundred percent present, but because of this food addiction, I was busy thinking, you know, when can I get a whole pizza? You know, when, when is the session session over? And, and so I, I mean, I never lost anybody. And I think out of like 250 or 300 couples I saw, I, I think there were, two that got divorced um but but you know so i was good anyway but um but it really bothered me and i felt like i wasn't in in integrity and so i went to psychologists i went to psychiatrists i went to overviews anonymous and there were little pieces of the puzzle here and there that helped and they were very good soulful conversations and i'm not sorry that i did it but it didn't solve the problem right so one of the last things that I did, this was back in, um, in trying to solve it, this was back in 2001 or so, when clicks were really cheap on the internet, I, I recruited people to a survey, and I ran it for several years, um, and the survey was all about how the foods, to look for correlations between the foods that we had trouble um, controlling and various life satisfaction, work satisfaction, and personality variables. And I found some interesting things. And at the time, I actually thought this would solve the problem. I found that um, I found that people who struggled with chocolate, and I was a big chocolate guy, they tended to have more loneliness and heartbreak in their life. These were not perfect correlations, but I did of trust the imagination. Right, right. You have to get them, they were there. Um, they tend to have more loneliness or heartbreak in their life. And that kind of made sense because I was not in the world's best marriage. And, you know, I actually, um, well, I actually talked to my mom, who was a the therapist, and I said, Mom, is there anything in my upbringing that would lead you to believe that, you know, I'd have more loneliness and go to chocolate? Yeah. So she said, this was an interesting story. She said, well, when she was a young mother, um, you know, when I was, maybe one, two, two and a half years old. We were living in Washington, D.C., and my dad was a captain in the Army. And he was terrified he was going to go to Vietnam. So not only was he busy, but she was terrified he was going to go to Vietnam. And and that her father, my grandfather, was missing for nine months. And so she was very depressed and very overwhelmed. Yeah. And she said that sometimes she just didn't have the wherewithal to... She said I was a colicky baby and... digestive problems, and she didn't have the wherewithal to, ho- to hold me every time I cried or to feed me the, the right thing. And she liked chocolate, and so she figured I must like chocolate. So she you would keep a bottle of Bosco, Bosco chocolate syrup, in a little refrigerator on the floor. Wow. And if she was overwhelmed, she'd say, Glenn, go, go get your Bosco. Wow. And I would crawl over the, the refrigerator, and I'd suck on the Bosco bottle, and I would basically um, go into a into a chocolate coma, right? Um, and so you'd think that, oh my God, well, that there is the match that struck the fire. Right? That's, that's why I have this pattern in my life. And you'd think that that insight would cure the problem. Um, but, but it didn't, the, the insight, it brought me closer to my mom. Like I can forgive her. I learned more about what she'd been through and I could forgive myself more saying, well, gee, this isn't really entirely my fault. It's not like I'm a, such a weak person. it's, um, this was a pattern that was kind of set up as a cabinet. And so it was a soulful and worthwhile conversation to have. And I subsequently found that food is a window into the soul and you can really jumpstart an interesting conversation by talking about people's um, predilections for trouble with particular foods. Um, and it's worthwhile, but but it didn't solve the problem because what happened was it, it's like there was this crazy voice in my head. Yeah. And that, that voice would say, Hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Your mama didn't love you enough, and she left this great big empty hole inside of you, and until we figure out how to, find, to fill that up, until we find the love of your life, you're just going to have to keep on right on binging on chocolate. Yippee! Basically, that's what I found with clients also.
1: Well, it sounds sounds like what you're saying there is that, that the issues for each person are unique to their situation, they're unique to them, but the overarching theories, the overarching principles can apply to anyone.
2: Well, yeah, what what I'm saying is being a detective or a psychologist to figure out what started the whole problem or what started the fire burning doesn't really seem to be the solution, at least not for people like me. Okay. Um it's more like you have to be a fireman because there's once the match is lit, then the fire rages all by itself. But the things that people binge on are typically not raw broccoli, right?
3: Right. <laughs> I Think
2: it's it's things that didn't exist on the Savannah. It's yeah. um you know, like, like these hyper palatable concentrations of salt and sugar and oil and excitotox- excitotoxins and starch and then it's all and and I was you know, I work with these companies. I know how many billions of dollars go into formulating that stuff. Yeah. And then you know then the advertising wraps it off up in a package that looks healthy, um, which isn't like all these multicolored, brilliant packages that are designed to really push the evolutionary buttons that look for nutritional diversity, um, but that that nutrition is not necessarily in that you know in that bar or bag or box. Right, and. Um, you know, and so people get, and then there's 5,000 to 7,000 messages beamed at us a year all about, you know, food, but how many of them are to eat more whole fruits and vegetables? Like, not many. Right. Um, I think less than a handful, right? So, so it's it's kind of a perfect storm. Um, and, oh, and then the addiction treatment industry says you can't hope to quit. The best you can do is attend one day at a time, right. blah, blah, blah. Right. So you have all these major forces in society that are kind of lined up um, against you. And, and what happens is it, it almost doesn't matter in some ways what the match was that struck the fire. You need a way to put the fire out. You need you need a fire hydrant and you need one quick. Mm-hmm.
1: I think so often we um, think of bulimia or anorexia um, and and as the eating disorders. And for a lot of people, they, they think, oh, that applies to women, not men. And, and, um, oh, I'm, you know, maybe not completely healthy, but I, I'm not that fat and that kind of thing. First off, can you kind of approach the, the issue of eating disorders as a whole? Are we talking that obesity is an eating disorder too? Or, um, you know, what does that look like? And then what is um, an approach we can take to start really attacking that? As you, you mentioned before, you know, uh, we don't need simple solutions we need you know the simple solution we need is getting the fire hydrogen open and putting water out putting the fire out this is we're at kind of epidemic emergency state right now
2: yeah well okay first of all um binge eating disorder is definitely an eating disorder um okay. and as is anorexia and bulimia and as a matter of fact um These are some of the mental health diagnoses with the highest incidence of morbidity um, because, you know, you're dealing with survival mechanisms and especially for anorexia, you're uh, restricting the nutritional and caloric sufficiency to the extent that survival really can be at stake. So I'm really not offering a solution for, like, I I can't promise to treat or diagnose any disease in this context. Uh, and my, psych- my, my psychological practice, maybe I can, um, but when I do that, I only work in concert with, you know, psychiatrists and usually another, um, you know, a social worker or a therapist. It's, you, re- you really kind of need a team to, to figure that out. Right. Uh, however, um, you know, the, the method I'll describe to you is it's a rules-based method, and the research on eating disorders—it's—it's it's kind of coalescing around some cognitive techniques, um, something called uh, DOBT and RODOBT. But, but, um, but what what I'm really suggesting is a very simple rules-based technique, and it might be in conflict with what a traditional therapist would tell you. Okay. Uh, so, so what 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 the traditional, um, and and by the way, this can work well. Um, I actually, my girlfriend is an eating disorders therapist and she works like this and it really can work well if you get the right person. So I don't mean to imply in any way that this doesn't work, but for some people, my approach might be a little better. What, what they tell you is that you really can't restrict yourself from having any food. They, They believe that the, idea that any food is off limits is dangerous for someone who's been stricken with, with an eating disorder. Um, and what I believe is that, in, in this approach at least, what really worked for me, I said, well, what? why should I eat some of these things that, like, why should I allow industry to keep feeding me these pleasure buttons? You know, what, so yes, no food should be off limits, but a lot of these things aren't even food. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like buying into the system telling you that, you know, yeah, these things which are so clearly associated with morbidity later in life and cancer and heart disease and, you know, dementia and all types of horrendous things, um, why are we even considering them food? And I don't, I don't tell people what to eat at all. I, one of the tenets of my system is that you really need to take responsibility for your own food plan and decide exactly what your rules are as opposed to continuing to follow this diet or that diet because um you know that there's this part of you that's very destructive with food and it will use it will attack anybody's diet that you're not taking responsibility for as um as faulty and then you're in this kind of no man's land until you find another one um so i i Believe that we have to take 100 percent responsibility for what we eat. I believe that part of that should involve involve at least an evaluation of are the things that you're putting into your mouth are they actually food or not? Okay. Um, I, don't, I don't think we can we should restrict food, but I don't think everything that we think is food and have been programmed to think of as food in our society is really food.
3: Okay. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So. One of those things would be, like you mentioned before, potato chips or, you know, these highly processed um, uh, man-made products. And I, I'm a big fan of potato chips. Does that mean that that we can never have those kind of non-food foods? Uh, or is it like, you know, we're at the football, we're watching the Super Bowl, and it's like a once a time a year or a couple times a year kind of thing? Or, you know, how do we really set the proper boundaries of of balance with that?
2: Well, I tell people to consider four types of food, food rules. Okay. Uh, There might be things that we never have, like where, for example, I, I never eat chocolate. It's just, um, it's like a drug to me. It's not, it's not a drug to most people. Um, I work with lots and lots of clients who, um, don't have any restrictions on chocolate whatsoever. I work with other ones who only, you it know, on the weekends or they only ever eat chocolate at social events or when they're out with somebody that they love. But, um, you know, th- there might be some things where never is just a lot easier than sometimes. And I've, I've seen that over and over again. And I've, I tried six ways this Sunday to figure out how I could eat chocolate and I just couldn't do it. And I'm, I'm, I'm much happier not having it. It's just I don't have those constant voices in my head saying, you know, you better have this or, hey, Glenn, you know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and a cocoa bean grows on a plant and so therefore chocolate's a vegetable. <laughs> I, I don't have to deal with crazy rationalizations and my energy right. doesn't go. So,
1: well, and you're not you're not really actually eating a cocoa bean. You're eating the finished product of using that as an ingredient too.
2: Yeah, with refined sugar and fat and oil and chemicals. Yeah. yeah. Um but nevertheless, you know, I think I think that people have the right to choose their freedoms and if some people would rather um you know if for some people they don't get carried away with it and it works out well and it's a pleasurable thing in life then um you know it's, it's up to you it's up to you I, I think you need the information but it's up right. to you yeah um i i tell people other categories might be conditionals and those are the types of things which would say well i only ever have pretzels at a major league baseball game or you know, the Super Bowl party or something like that. There are things you always do. Like I, I always have six classes of water a day or several servings of fruits and vegetables or I always make a plan for the next day just to force myself to think through whether I'm going to have enough food. Um, and then there are uh, unrestricted, And unrestricteds are just categories of things that you know you can have as much as you want to and it's worthwhile thinking it through so that um you know you're not you know you're not going to starve no matter no matter what you do
3: yeah absolutely
2: and when people are creating a set of food rules i I recommend people start with just one so it doesn't get too complicated like think of your single most difficult food trigger or behavior and eating behavior and um try to make a rule that would nail that down so you can learn how this game is played and restore your sense of power um but but when people are constructing a food plan i suggest that they um, think of themselves like a city traffic planner yeah and if you're a city traffic planner you're trying to optimize two variables you're trying to optimize the free flow of traffic through the city but you're also trying to optimize safety and there's a balance between that because when you Optimize safety at a particular intersection. You slow down traffic, right? Right. You put a stoplight at that intersection, then you know people are going to have to stop, and it's going to take them a little longer to get where they wanted to go, and there's going to be a little bit of a bite to your freedom. But a city traffic planner makes the decision that you know it's worth that sacrifice because there were too many accidents at that intersection. Yeah. But you don't want to put you don't want to put a a stoplight when you just needed a stop sign or a yield sign. And you definitely don't want to put stoplights everywhere. You only want to put them at the dangerous intersections. If they're places that are way out in the country and hardly any cars go by, you probably don't even need that. And I, I remember driving in um, South Carolina on some roads and where the, the speed limit was like 55. or There wasn't even a stop sign at the, um, wow. at the intersection. So, so um, you know, because you could see for miles and you'd know when another car was coming. And, you know, sometimes it's just, it's just safe. Um, and what I also find is that people, um, the enemy seems to be the failure to have made your important food decisions for those intersections beforehand. So for example, a lot of people will tell me they get in trouble in restaurants and I'll say, well, have you ever thought through how you want to loosen your rules up at a restaurant? Yeah. And they'll say, no, I just kind of go to the restaurant. I say, well, <laughs> you know, what would you like to do at the restaurant? And they'll say, well, I'd, I'd like to be able to have one piece of bread and one dessert.
3: Okay.
2: They well, why can't you do that? Now, now it turns out that um, see, willpower is a fatigable muscle. All the research is suggesting that it's not really like an on-off switch, where you have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. It's more like it's gas in the tank, and every decision we make wears down that gas. So... That's why so many people have trouble, you know, start out with the best intentions in the morning, but then at nighttime, they find themselves reading the refrigerator. Right. They just make too many decisions that day. Yeah. So if you think through what you really want to do beforehand and write it out and be really, really clear about it, you know, I, I will only have one dessert and one piece of bread at a restaurant environment, and I will only do that, you know, a maximum of two times per calendar
3: week. Right.
2: You think that through, and then that decision is made and it's a lot easier. So, so for a lot of people, that's, um, that's a solution. So
1: it's really good. Now, a lot of what you're, you're talking about, I, you know, we hear about all of these diets, you know, in different styles. Oh, we're going to go on to the keto diet. Diet. We're going to go into Atkins. We're going to do, you know, no carb. We're going to do paleo. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do, and, it becomes like, oh, I, you know, I'm a month in, I'm two months in. Oh, all of a sudden I'm not doing it anymore. How do we create a lifestyle instead of just a diet? You know, How do we move this from um, a fad in our life that's passing or some system and rules that we don't hold to, but then how do we move this into a lifestyle that actually changes us and becomes the new norm instead of the temporary norm?
2: Well, there are a couple of things involved with that. That's a really good question. Um, and it has to do with developing character rather than following rules. Okay. So a lot of times I'll, I'll ask people, are you, um, do you think you could give up chocolate forever? And they'll say, no, I couldn't do that. And they'll say, well, could you become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate? And they'll say, maybe I could do that.
3: Okay.
2: The reason that resonates a little easier is that without knowing it, we have all developed characterological patterns that we incorporate into our self-identity, the kind of person we want to be, how we think of ourselves, um, that are just automatic and, and a part of who we are.
3: Yeah.
2: So, so for example, if you... You walk into a diner, and the waitress sits you down at a counter, and there's no window at the counter. There's really hardly anybody in the diner right there. No one can really see you. Um, and she says, I'll be right back. I just got to get you a menu. And you notice that there's a $10 bill on the table because the last customer left her a tip, and she didn't see it yet. Right. The question is, do you take that $10 bill?
3: Right.
2: And the overwhelming majority of people that I ask about that said, no, I never do that. And I say, why? No one's going to catch you. No one will know. It's pleasurable. It would benefit you economically. Um, why wouldn't you do that? And they say, well, I'm not a thief. That's her money, and she earned it. And yeah. I'm not going to. And I'll say, so there are pleasurable things right in front of you that you could get away with having that you don't do because you made a character decision without thinking about it. Right. They'll say, absolutely. That that so. So you need to um, you need to understand that what you're really doing is trying to become the kind of person who only eats chocolate on the weekends or you know has six servings of fruit and vegetables every day you're trying to build character and make it a part of you rather than um, white knuckling a rule that you can just follow for a little while right The other part has to do with people's fear of really drawing lines in the sand and defining, these types of rules for themselves in the first place because they'll say well i'm i'm going to inevitably fail right like, like nobody's perfect and i'm probably gonna make a mistake and right then i'm gonna feel really guilty yeah and then i'm gonna beat myself up and who needs that so i'd i'd rather just follow a guideline and i'd rather eat when i'm hungry and stop when i'm full
3: right
2: um and i'll say well that's a really good guideline to follow I and mean, nobody's gonna argue with that but um but let's just, for argument's sake, talk about this fear of the rule, because first of all, is it really healthy to, you know, to self-castigate and beat yourself up so much after you make a mistake? Now, right. Now, I have to introduce a concept here. Um, one of the things I figured out when I was learning about how to separate from the lizard brain was, first of all, that the rest of the brain is superior to the lizard brain. Okay. So... You know, our mammalian brain evolved to help us identify, well, gee, it's not all about eat, meat, or kill. It's about what impact does this have on the people that I love and the um, right. you know, the rest of the tribe, the rest of the herd. Um, and then the logical brain of the neocortex developed, and I'm, I'm bastardizing this if a neurologist <laughs> this, but, Yeah, but, but, you know, it developed to say, well, what are the long-term goals? And... And you delay that action for a while so we can figure out how it's going to affect where we're going to be in six months or a year or two years. Right. And and these brain structures evolved later over the course of millions of years to have the ability to inhibit the earlier structures. And that's the part that's missing from most people's understanding about how this all works. People think that addiction has to overpower you, that you don't have the control you really do. It requires right. some thinking work. You have to make these decisions. What you really do? Um, so you have to start to eradicate these notions of powerlessness. But anyway, I decided I decided I was going to call my lizard brain my pig. Okay. I know that's a little embarrassing <laughs> for a sophisticated psychologist, but I um, decided I was going to call it my pig. I decided I was going to make a line in the sand that said, um, said, said, for example, I never eat chocolate. I'll never eat chocolate again.
3: Okay.
2: And that if I heard a voice in my head saying chocolate was a vegetable or I should have it just this one time or, you know, really you just did a lot of exercise and you can afford it, I would say that that was pig squeal. Okay. And I don't listen to farm animals telling me what to do. Yeah. So I, don't eat, <laughs> I don't eat pig slop. Right. So And that that crazy paradigm, that really primitive, crazy paradigm, which I'm embarrassed about in a lot of ways, um, because I really wanted to find something more sophisticated and interesting. But that like, crazy, primitive paradigm wound up giving me those moments of like, those microseconds that I needed to delay and remember who I was, the kind of person I wanted to be in this environment, that I'd make the right decision. But not 100% right away, but, you know, it, it was in some ways, it was really a miracle. It was the only thing that was working for me when nothing else really was. And um, and so your, you know, your original question about how do you make it more permanent, right? In part, at least in the solution that I've discovered, which doesn't work for everybody, but you know works for me and thousands of other people, was um, to make a decision to separate my constructive versus destructive thoughts about food. What what I really made a decision to do there was to say, look, this, this this is destructive, this thinking about chocolate. This is not who I want to be. It's not the person I want to be in the world. It's not how I want to be around food. It's interfering with me being a psychologist. It's interfering with my relationships. I don't want to have chocolate anymore. Right. Um, and it, it turns out that, this, that when you make that decision and you understand your destructive thoughts about food as kind of part of the not me well at that point you start to recognize that the excessive guilt that comes after you make a mistake it's really part of the destructive self and and real binge motivated because what the pig is trying to do is wear you down to the point that you don't feel like you're strong enough to resist the next binge okay Um. It's like it's saying, "Oh, you're pathetic. You're too weak. You might as well just go have another chocolate bar." That's yeah. that's really what it's about. Yeah. And when I recognized how difficult it was to continue binging without continually yelling at myself, right. I started to forgive myself at those moments. And and I also realized I would never treat a friend like this. Right. Right. My friend said they overate on pasta or chocolate or whatever. I would you know would ask them what happened, and ask them what we're going to plan to do next time. How could we do it better? Yeah. And I say, you know, chin up, buddy. It's okay. Yeah. Human. you may. Um, If I, if I touched a hot stove by accident, I would not run around saying I'm a compulsive hot stove toucher. I might as well put my, <laughs> my whole hand on this. Right. Right. Um, and, th- and then I started looking at the psychology of winning and goal achievement. And it's, it's a psychology of certitude. It's, yeah. um, it's not a, maybe I will. And maybe I won't. It's like, I can visualize myself on the top of this mountain. I'm going to climb to the top. right? And the reason that that works is because it empowers you to purge all of the doubt and insecurity from your mind. Yeah. You hear little voices that says, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Maybe it's too windy. Maybe I'm not strong enough. When you're setting out towards the goal, you don't want to spend energy on those voices. You want to direct all your energy towards the goal. And then if you make a mistake, you don't roll all the way down the mountain to start again. You just, you know wherever you fell down to, you get up you brush yourself off and you, you keep walking. If, if you keep doing that, eventually you get to the top. Right. So, so that those elements, the, the elements of, um, character building, becoming a particular kind of person around food, deciding the kind of person you want to be, um, making a decision to separate your constructor versus destructive thoughts and really cultivating a success identity rather than a failure, failure identity. Um, you know, and being willing to forgive yourself if you make a mistake and just get back up and do it again, you put those three things together, and now you're you're really developing a lifelong character that lasts, as opposed to, oh my god, I'm just trying to follow this rule and it's gonna it's gonna kill me eventually. You know? Right. So,
1: absolutely. There's so much we could talk about uh, about this, and it's an important topic. Um, you've got a book called Never Binge Again. And, um, tell us about that book and what someone might gain by reading it.
2: Well, first of all, you can get a copy for free at my website, along with, um, this philosophy sounds weird and kind of harsh when you talk about it in theory, but in practice, it's very compassionate and exciting. Right. So I I recorded a bunch of sessions and I give them away for free, um, so if they just go to com and- you sign up for the reader bonus list, they can pick all that up. Oh, that's cool. Thanks. Yeah. Well, the book itself, it was originally a journal. See, it took me a few years to really work out the whole system, and there were so many different creative pig squeals that I was fighting. Um, you know, like, what do you do when the pig says, well, you feel confident right now, but inevitably... You know, you're not going to be able to maintain this. I'll, I'll get you tomorrow, or I'll get you next week, right. or get get you in a year, or you're going to forget, or you know, gee, you're not losing weight fast enough. Um, you know, this is obviously a stupid system. Or, um, there are so many different creative things that my pig said, and then you know, my clients and my patients' pigs said. Right. That I went through a lot of journaling to figure out how to recognize those as squeals and and, and ignore them. Um and I never actually intended to publish the book. I was really just trying to figure it out for myself and I did. But I wound up being a minor partner in a publishing company and the CEO said that they wanted to publish their own book because um they wanted to prove that they knew what they were doing and um he asked me about had I ever written a book or would I write a book and I said, Well, I had this crazy philosophy and this journal that I wrote and he said that's perfect, and um, so I. It's really funny because everything else I've done in my career has been very methodical and research oriented, and this one, I just like. I edited the journal in the summer, and wow. Um, wow, and yeah, now it's it's like usually between the number one and number five book on weight loss on the Kindle, you know, where wow. really they sort of download it and, and um, three hundred thousand readers and over a thousand reviews. It's it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. Um, so what, what you really get by reading it is um, an understanding of how the whole system works you get to save the work involved in figuring out your own pixels. most people will say that they felt like I was reading their own thoughts to them in their head like, like, you know because it turns out that I wasn't the only one that had these rationalizations and there, it turns out there are only a few dozen rationalizations overall that people use. And after they just start repeating themselves and, you know, so if you go on our forum or, you know, you look at what people are actually saying, it's all the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and I can save you that work. I can, I can save you a lot of the work of having to figure that all out yourself. And I can also get you over a lot of the reluctance and fear that people have about kind of restructuring their thinking about food in this way. Yeah. Um, And I can give you a lot of freedom. I can give you the freedom to develop the plan that you want to. Um, So that's why I do that. I I also set up a whole bunch of food plan starter templates. Um, Like I said, I want people to take responsibility for their own food rules and their own food plan. I want them to start with just one but nevertheless people wonder well how do you construct a set of rules for a paleo diet or a vegetarian diet or you know point counting or calorie count? how do you do all that um, and even though they're not the way that I particularly eat I put a lot of effort into developing some some plans like that so that that's all free it's all available and then you know we have some paid coaching programs and things that we sell if you want to go further but um tried to help as many people as we can so we put together a lot of free material
1: that's very cool that's very cool and they can find that at binge dot com yep perfect now some people might be resonating and they might want to go deeper how can they connect
2: with you well that that's the best way really never dot com you can sign up for the bonus list or um there is a contact form on the site um i i do offer coaching it's um with 300,000 readers, I can't talk to everybody to see whether it's a good idea or not. Um, I, I do respond to the contact form briefly. I, I wish I could afford to talk to everyone. I, I would do this all for free if I was a rich guy. I just got divorced, so I, I'm not a rich guy. <laughs> um, but, but but um, you know, I, I do have a program which is very fair and, um, you know, very effective and structured in a way that know is affordable for everyone i've got coaches that work with me um you can work with me directly if you really want to but it, it's better if people go through that program rather than you know saying hey could we get on the phone and talk about whether i could coach with you directly I just i just can't make the time i wish i could but i, I can't um so it's all at never
1: cool very cool well let's dive into some rapid fire questions as we move towards the end of this episode yep The first question I have, uh, and these are questions I ask every guest on the episode. first question is, what is one tip you would give someone with a big idea and dream and they simply don't know where to start?
2: The tip I would give them would be to start in the middle. Okay. That most people with a big idea and dream, um, they worry that they have to have the whole thing planned out. But if you ask yourself, what is the smallest step I could take without the possibility of failure, regardless of whether you know exactly how it all comes together, um, you will have begun to make the space in your mind for that thing to happen. I do believe in planning. I believe in business plans. I believe in research. I believe in structuring things. But by far, when I look back on my life, the things I regret most were not taking action. Okay. I, I made mistakes along the way, but yeah. So start start in the middle. What's the smallest thing that you can do without the possibility of failure?
1: In our crazy world, what's one change you'd like to see in the world?
2: Death penalty for parking violations. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a that's a Steve Martin joke. Um, yeah, but I would like to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm from New York City, so brought me with the big deal for a while.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: What do you want your legacy to be?
2: I would like to have made a serious dent in the binge eating, overeating, and obesity problem. I'd like to give. I would like to give millions of people their life back. That's what I want my legacy to be.
1: That's very cool. Who or what inspires you?
2: It inspires me when people make sacrifices to help other people that inspires me a lot um, it inspires me when people live by the credo that, I got this from Jim Rohn that a life of discipline is better than a life of regret yeah I, I think that's that's very true I think that um, you build disciplines into your life that you have fewer and fewer regrets
1: what are you currently reading or watching?
2: Um. Well, I have a book called Wild Nights on my bed, bed stand by, uh, who wrote this? Ross, no, Benjamin Reese. It's about um, taming sleep in our restless world, and it's got some paradigm-shifting ideas about that. And I've been so crazy busy lately, sleep is suffering a little bit, so... I'm looking forward to um, integrating some of those ideas.
1: And every episode with this final question: What is one dream you're still wanting to fulfill in your own life?
2: like I have a kid. I don't know if I don't know if it's possible that you know I'm fifty-three years old and I just got divorced and I'm not going to rush into anything. But um, I like to think that with my healthy eating and exercise habits now, that maybe I've got another 40 years of activity left and I think I could raise a kid at least um, maybe adopt a man or a 10 year old or something
1: Glenn thanks for taking time out to share a little bit of your story and insights into such an important
2: topic well thank you I really enjoyed it
1: once again I want to thank today's guest Glenn Livingston for taking time out to share his story you can check him out at neverbingeagain.com on this week's special Wednesday episode our guest is Tom Muley, He is an entrepreneur and the visionary behind iTrekkers. His company helps individuals, groups, and businesses book online guided outdoor adventures. In this episode, he shares how he takes his passion for the outdoors and for adventure and makes them into a business. It is a super fun episode, so make sure to check out our episode with Tom Muley on Wednesday. Having a big idea and dream can be a very scary endeavor to do on your own. You may not know the questions to ask or how to create a strategy around that idea and dream and make it a reality. We are so excited that in early 2018, Jumblethink is launching our first ever virtual idea camp and we want you to be a part of it. Our virtual idea camp is all about helping you with the tools and the strategy to take that idea and dream and make it a reality. It's easy to get involved and if you sign up today for some information, you'll be offered a free pass to our first ever virtual idea camp and free access into our private Facebook group. It's easy to learn more. Swing on over to jumblethink.com slash idea camp. That's www.jumblethink.com slash ideacamp. We look forward to having you a part of our first ever idea camp. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. We're so glad to have you along for the ride and we can't wait for you to check out Wednesday's episode. Now go out there, create something awesome and change the world around you. Les mères de famille, les enfants peuvent également prendre un moment revitalisant dans quelques mois lorsque vous aurez bien saisi la technique que vous serez maître de votre corps
2: vous pourrez vous décontracter
0: MIDI clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. Ninety-one percent of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with.